<clears throat> How many of you have ever watched a TV game show called Jeopardy? Quite a few. So I've got a short version of Jeopardy this morning. The category is Kings. And you remember that you have to phrase your response in the form of a what? Of a question. So here's the first question. I have a five of them. Here's number one. This king commissioned an English translation of the Bible published in 1611, which has been used around the world. Who is king? Okay, I started out with an easy one. Okay, here's the next. Number two. This king came to the throne in 1509, and his first act was to marry his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. He separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church. He's famous for his six wives, and I understand he said to each one of them, Honey, I won't keep you long. So who, who is this? That was a clue. Okay, it's King Henry VIII. Okay, here's the next one. Number three, this king, noted for his height, became the first king of Israel. King Saul, good. As a teenager, this king defeated a giant standing two feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal. Who would that be? King David. Very good. Now here's number five, the last king. This king had over 1,000 wives and female companions and was described as the wisest man who ever lived, although that might seem like a paradox. Who would that be? King Solomon. Yes, very good, church, on the quiz. Now, today we're concluding our series on the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to consider this final phrase of the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, one of the central themes of this prayer is the kingdom of God. And who is the king of God's kingdom? Jesus Christ is the king. And Jesus, as he taught people, said that an entirely different kind of life is possible when you embrace me as your king, when you actually decide to become a kingdom citizen. And when people heard this message, when they actually decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ, it was an amazing thing because they gave up their possessions, they sold their businesses, they left their careers, and they did it with great joy because they found something their soul had longed for their entire life. They found a close connection with God. And in fact, it was that, that close connection with God that prompted the disciples to come to Jesus in the first place and say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray like you pray because they had never seen anybody with a connection to God like Jesus. I mean, Jesus had this incredible joy in his life, this peace. He was a man who, who really understood how to love people because sometimes that love was tender and sometimes that love was, was tough. And Jesus was a man of courage. He was so courageous that he never compromised his convictions. And Jesus knew how to have fun. He loved people. He loved parties. And so the disciples watched Jesus and they thought, you know, that's the kind of life I want. And friends, I believe that that's true for every single one of us. We want the kind of life that God created us to live. And Jesus modeled that kind of life for us. And so the question is, how is that kind of life really possible? And I think the answer is right here in this phrase. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Because in order to have that close connection with God, this is what we need to do. We need to seek his kingdom, to depend on his power, and to live for his glory. And that's the whole outline for the message this morning. And I want us to break that down and look at each of these ideas. So this is the first one this morning. If you want that kind of connection with God, if you want to experience his blessing and his favor in your life, here's the first thing we need to do. Seek his kingdom, not your own. Seek his kingdom, not your own. Now look at this 
statement by Jesus. Seek first his kingdom, that is God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things, all these things that you worry about. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? How is God going to take care of me? All these things will be given to you as well. On the day that Jesus was born, a very powerful man was engaged in building his kingdom. To the north, it stretched to England, south to Africa, east to Asia. He ruled the known world. He was arguably the most powerful man who had ever lived, and he was devoted to extending his kingdom, deepening his power, and promoting his glory. His army was so strong that it was virtually unchallenged, and during his reign, the world lived during this golden era called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Here's a picture of this Roman emperor. His name, Caesar Augustus. And by the end of his life, people worshiped him, literally. And 2,000 years later, we still see the influence of his reign. I was thinking about one of my favorite movies. Does anybody know this movie title? Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. It's a movie about one man's struggle against the, the power and corruption of the Roman Empire, a place where, where Caesar could survey the expanse of his empire and say, look at my kingdom and my power and my glory. But it was a corrupt kingdom with perverted power, self-promoting glory, but it was very impressive. And we're told by a noted historian, his name is Luke, he actually wrote two books in the Bible, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, about this king, Caesar Augustus. Let me read these words, they might sound very familiar to you. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. It comes from the Christmas story in Luke chapter two. Now you think the IRS is powerful? This guy could tax the entire world. And Caesar at this time is about 60 years old. He wants to flex his political muscles. He wants people to stand amazed at the grandeur of his glory. And so he just makes this decree and, and people have to go to their hometown and register for the tax. The thing is that Caesar Augustus has no idea what he has set in motion. New Testament scholar Tom Wright puts it this way. This man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey all at the whim of this king. Only notice the result. A child is born in this little town that, that Caesar has never heard of that just happens to be mentioned in an ancient prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, Caesar says the word and events are set in motion so that this baby, Jesus Christ, is born in Bethlehem. This baby who's called the King of the Jews. And in these events, whose will is actually being done? Yeah, God's will is being done. And this is such an important question because like Caesar Augustus, this man who wants to build a kingdom, that desire is in our heart too. Deep inside, we are all kingdom builders. Now, one of the best commentaries that I've ever read on this desire to be a kingdom builder was written by the famous theologian, his name is Dr. Seuss. Anybody ever read any of his books? Well, there's one called Yertle the Turtle. And this is a great commentary on this desire in our hearts to build a kingdom because Yertle is the king of a turtle pond. And one day he decides that his kingdom isn't big enough. And I quote Dr. Seuss, this is what Yertle says, I'm the king of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. And so this is what Yertle does. 
he gives the command and all these turtles start to stack one on top of, of another, first dozens and then hundreds, and pretty soon there is this really, really tall turtle throne. And as Yertle sits atop this turtle throne, this is what he says, I am Yertle the turtle, O marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all that I see. And Yertle thought his throne was secure until something unexpected happened. And again, I quote Dr. Seuss, and the turtle on the bottom did a plain little thing. He burped, and that burp shook the throne of the king. And today that great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud, that's all he can see. The story is such a poignant reminder that we are all kingdom builders. Because deep down, we want to be in charge of our lives. We want to be in charge of our goals and our agenda and our dreams. And some people are more overt about this. Some of us are more subtle about this desire to, to be kingdom builders. For example, maybe you go to your office and your projects are being completed and people are carrying out your orders, what does that mean? You're the boss and this is your kingdom. Or maybe you're a parent and you go into your child's room and you tell your child exactly where to put the clothes away and where to put the toys and how to make the bed, what does this mean? Well, you're in charge and this bedroom is part of your kingdom. Or how about this? I come home after work, newspaper is next to the lazy boy there's a cold glass of iced tea, a plate of hors d'oeuvres. What does that mean? I'm in the wrong house. <laughs> I've entered somebody else's kingdom, clearly. But you get the point. This, the story of Yertle the turtle is a reminder that we are kingdom builders. Because for so many people, life's about my comfort and my achievements and my, my lifestyle. But the problem with building your own kingdom is this. It won't last. Some turtle burps and it all comes tumbling down. But there is one kingdom that will last forever. It's God's kingdom. And Jesus invites us into his kingdom, but then he makes this really bold statement. He says, listen, you want to have the life that you were created to live? Seek this kingdom first. Now, what does that mean? Well, Pastor Rick Warren had this interesting uh, take on that verse, and he actually developed this acrostic, F-I-R-S-T, and it's on your outline this morning, five areas of your life where God wants first place, and the first is your finances. This is a verse from the book of Proverbs, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Basically, God is saying, hey, look, put me first in your finances, and I will honor your commitment and your dedication. I was sharing this story, first service that I read this week about a pastor and the church where he served was involved in a building campaign. And what he decided to do, he was talking about giving and the vision of the church. And so at the very end of the message, at the end of the service, they were gonna play a song and he encouraged everybody, if you wanna make a significant pledge to this building program, I want you to stand to your feet when that last song is playing. So he gets to the end of his sermon and he looks over and the organist says, well, pastor, what song do you want me to play? And he says, I don't know. How about the uh, Star Spangled Banner? See, first service had trouble with that. I just, <laughs> let, let me ask you this. What kind of giver does God love? 
a cheerful giver, not a guilty giver, not a manipulated giver, but somebody who understands God's grace and gives in response to God's grace. Because can you outgive God? No way. And listen, if you want God to bless any area of your life, what you need to do is put God first in that area. If you want God to bless your finances, put God first in your finances. And the question is, are we really doing that? Are we giving God the first part of our income or do we pay the bills and try to figure out if anything is going to be left over to give to God and to his work in the world? Because God says, honor me and I will honor you and provide everything necessary to accomplish my purpose for your life. Now here's another area, interest. These are hobbies, things that you enjoy doing. Look at this verse from 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know, we have this tendency sometimes to put our lives in categories. We have our social life, we have our work life, we have our school life, we have all these boxes, and God says, look, I want to be in first place in every area of your life, because I'm God. And that leads us to this third area, which is the area of relationships. This is what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandments. Now, wives, I have a question for you this morning. Did you know that the best place, the safest place to be in your husband's heart is number two, right after God? And husbands, that's true for you. The best place, the safest place for you to be in your wife's heart is number two, right after God. And here's why. Because God made us in such a way that our deepest needs, our need for significance, our need for security can be met in God. And sometimes, this is often the case, we look to our spouse to meet those needs. And that's why God says, put me first in your relationships. Now here's another area of life where God wants first place. It's our schedule, our schedule. Now how do you you put God first in your schedule? Let me get real practical here, two ways. First is this, give God the first part of every day. Talk to God before you talk to anybody else. Now, who modeled that for us? Jesus did. This is from Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he what? He prayed. Now, listen, one of the things that you can do when you wake up in the morning, before your feet ever hit the floor, you can just talk to God and say, hey, Good morning, God. Thank you for getting me through the night. I guess if I'm still alive, you've got something important for me to do today. So when I get out of bed, let's do it together. Listen, before you watch television, check your email, get on the computer, talk to God. Because I'll tell you what, if you do that, it changes the flow of your entire day. Because you're reminded that God is with you and that God is for you. And it gives you the opportunity to listen for his voice. And listen, here's another, another way that you can put God first in your schedule. What's the first day of the week? Yeah, what day is it? Where are you guys? Okay, do you get my point? God wants us to take that first day of the week and come together and worship him. And I think this is interesting. When you look at the Old Testament, there were six days of work and then a day of what? Yeah, you'd rest. And in the New Testament, the week begins with a day of worship followed by six days of work. 
And it seems to me that in worship, we talked about it this morning, what are the two things that we experience in worship? God's strength, it's like getting your spiritual batteries recharged, and God's peace. And so if you go out these doors with more strength and more peace, that enables you to go out and carry out God's work in the world. So put God first in your schedule. And finally, here's the last thing, put God first in your troubles. Look at this verse from Psalm 50, and call upon me, in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you and you will honor me. Putting God first in our troubles means that when you've got a problem, your first thought is not this, what am I gonna do? Because sometimes that's where we start. What am I gonna do? What we need to say is, Father, what are we gonna do? Because God loves you and God is with you. And he's promised to never leave you or forsake you, so put him first in your troubles as well. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, said this one time. He said, it doesn't doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer to his heart. And that is so true. So to have a close connection with God, to have this life of his favor and blessing, what's the first thing we need to do? Look at your outline. Seek his kingdom not your own. And here's the second thing, depend on his power, not your own. Depend on his power, not your own. At the height of the Civil War, when asked if he thought he would succeed or fail, Abraham Lincoln said this, without God, I cannot succeed. With God, I cannot fail. And look at this verse, this is from Psalm 84, it says this, you bless all who depend on you for their strength. That's an amazing promise. God, you bless all those who depend on you for their strength. Now, is God all-powerful? Can God do anything? What do, we, what do we call that attribute of God? His omnipotence. He has all power. Does God want to share his power with us? Well, he tells us that he does. And we need his power for, for two things in general. First of all, the power to get going. How many of you have ever needed power to get going? And then there's a second category, the power to keep going. And God says, I want to give you my power, but how do we access the power of God? And the Bible has so many stories that point this out by faith, by really believing that if I come to God and I say, God, I need your strength, I need you, that God will hear and answer that prayer. And church, you've heard me say this many times, that the degree to which you pray is the degree to which you are depending on God and his power. Let me ask you this, where do you need God's power in your life this morning? In your marriage, at work, maybe you've got some health issues and you just need God to give you his strength. You know what Jesus said? He said you have not because you what? You ask not. And I really hope that this series on the Lord's Prayer has has helped you think about your own prayer life and how you can strengthen it, how you be can become a more consistent and a more passionate prayer and how you can depend on God for what you need. Now that brings us to the third way that we can have a close connection with God. Number three, live for his glory, not your own. Live for his glory, not your own. Look at this next verse. It says this, God will bless everyone who honors him. God will bless everyone who honors him. And look at this verse as well. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Now, 
let me just give you some practical ways that you can live for God's glory. First of all, you can do that by serving other people. God's given us gifts and abilities, and they're not just for us. They're for others, especially people here in your church family. We just had a membership class uh, a week ago Saturday. Had 30 people who came to that class. Had a great time discussing the vision and the values of the church. And I talked about this, about the Teflon church and the Velcro church. And some of you may have heard this, but the Teflon church is where people come in the front door and slide out the back door. The Velcro church is where people come in the church and they stick. And here's why they stick. Two big reasons. Number one, people feel loved and accepted right where they are. And here's the other reason. Because people feel like there's a place here where I can make a contribution. I can use my gifts and abilities to make a difference. And church, I am so thankful because many of you are doing exactly that. You're serving in so many ways. When we ask for volunteers, so many of you say, hey, I'll do that. And I'm just so thankful. And if you're not involved in serving, I encourage you to do that. Write it on your connection card. Hey, I want to be involved. And we'll follow up and get in touch with you. Now, here's another way that you can live for God's glory. And it is simply this, being willing to share your story with other people. And think about how this works. When you get to know somebody, you start telling them things about your life and they start telling you things about their life. You guys are getting to know each other's stories. But when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of a bigger story, a story that involves God and his grace, a story that involves Jesus. And when you meet people and get to know them, you can build that, that relational bridge so that you can share your story and God's story with them. Speaking of, of stories, let me just close with, with this thought. We began our study of the Lord's Prayer with this phrase. This is how the prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your what? Your name. And we talked about the fact that in our world, God's name is not being hallowed. It's not being honored the way that it should be. God is not being valued. But do you realize that one day, God's name will be honored completely? I was thinking about it as I was working on the message. There are so many names of God in the Bible, and they all have different meanings about who God is and how he wants to connect with us and be our, our God, our provider. And, and I thought about this too, that the name of Jesus is a remarkable, remarkable name. We talked about Luke, the historian who, who wrote the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. And Luke points out that Jesus' death, just like his birth, really happened because of the decree of Caesar. Now we know that Jesus didn't die because of a direct decree from Caesar, but it was a decree by one of his lower ranking bureaucrats, Pontius Pilate, who, by the way, married the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. And so when you look at the scope of history, you realize that, that Caesar determined the place where Jesus Christ would be born. And Caesar determined the manner in which Jesus Christ would die. But was Caesar really in charge? No, God was and is. And we know this about Jesus, that he wasn't the victim of circumstance. Jesus could have called angels and they would have rescued him at any moment. But Jesus chose to lay down his life for us, to die on a cross and there is this beautiful passage in the Bible, it's in the book of Philippians chapter two, where Paul says this, that because Jesus was obedient to death on a cross, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someday, someday every knee will bow. Someday King Jesus is going to raise his scepter and thrones will come tumbling down. And a lot of really big turtles are going to see a whole lot of mud. Now you think about this. Think about this. Every person who's ever lived from Adam to the last person born in the human race will one day bow in recognition of the kingdom and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. That applies to everybody that you know, everybody where you work, everybody at your gym, everybody at your school, everybody in your neighborhood. It applies to every U.S. president, to every world leader, to Adolf Hitler, to Joseph Stalin, to Saddam Hussein. The people on their knees will include Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, the pharaohs of Egypt. Every knee will bow. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, the Apostle Paul, King David, King Solomon. Now many of those people will bow as an act of devotion because they love Jesus Christ. But church, we know this reality. For many people, their knees will be bent involuntarily by the power of a holy and just God who is worthy to command the worship of every creature in his universe. Someday, that will happen. But listen, we don't have to wait for that day to worship God. We don't have to wait for that day to express our love for this God who loves us so much that he would allow his son to die for us. That's what we're going to celebrate in just a few moments. And so church, as we bring this, this series to a conclusion on the Lord's Prayer, I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to say the Lord's Prayer together. And not just say it, but actually pray it. These last few weeks we've talked about what all these words and all these phrases mean. Would you just do this? Would you stand to your feet? And I'm going to put the words on screen right now. And let's engage our heads and our hearts as we pray this prayer that Jesus taught us together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.